Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. So we're going to keep kicking on the, um, the study of God's glory and redemption as we look through the Old Testament. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, which I hope you do, or the Bible app, would you open them up to the book of Judges or you know, scroll open to today's event so you can follow along? And uh, we're going to cover the whole book of Judges today. So uh, lunch will be provided at about 4 o'clock once we're done. And uh, no, we're going to go through the whole book of Judges. We're going to hit the the big points, but we're going to also highlight some of the Judges as we go through. Now, the book of Joshua kind of uh, ends about halfway through, really, with this statement. So Joshua took the entire land, all of the promised land that God had given to his people... He brought them up out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land after they crossed over the Jordan River and defeated Jericho with some marching and shouting. God gave them the whole of the promised land. And, and it, Joshua, the book, tells us that Joshua took control of much of that land in keeping with all that the Lord had told Moses. Joshua then gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. After this, the land had rest from war. And what God's plan was, was to take his people into the promised land. They would defeat certain places and certain areas. And then as they faithfully grew in number, as they were faithful and obedient to him, he was going to slowly give them more and more of the land as it was necessary. God had promised them back in the Exodus, uh, the book of Exodus, that he wasn't going to give them the whole land at once because he didn't want it to go wild and be uncontrolled. But instead, he was going to give them bit by bit the land and drive out the Canaanites or the people who were in the land previously in front of them. And so Joshua really sets the stage. God's people, they're ready to go. They're ready to take over the rest of the promised land as is necessary. And they're going to be faithful people. And that brings us to the book of Judges. It's kind of where we resolve Joshua was the great leader that came after Moses And then after Joshua's death, we're kind of left with a vacuum in leadership, and we're left with a broken covenant. Now, if you guys remember, we've talked about covenant a little bit, but not in depth. And a covenant is an agreement between two people. And especially in this context, usually one of those is a more powerful person who has most of the responsibility. And that's what we have in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the one true God chose his people and promised to them to give, to provide, to protect, to do amazing things in and through them, so long as they simply remained faithful to him. That was the whole contract. Be faithful and do what I say, and I will give you all that you need. And, and it was really pretty simple and, and not too difficult in many ways. And yet, we see that these very people struggled to keep their end of the bargain. Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Uh, chapter 1 kind of gave us some, some uh, just quick stories about a couple of the tribes and what they had done in their exploits. And then we get to chapter 2 and it says this, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you out of Egypt 
and led you into the land I had promised to your ancestors. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You are to tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What have you done? So God, the angel of the Lord, we believe this is Christ, a pre-incarnate Christ, comes and visits his people and says to them, I made a deal with you. I'm never going to break my end of the bargain. And yet, here you already have. Now, we might wonder, what is it that the Israelites have done to break this bargain, this covenant with God, where he promised to care for them if they would only remain faithful to him? Well, he made this this command to them, you are not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And they were supposed to go into Canaan and destroy all of the pagan countries and, and cities ahead of them and also to tear down all of the false gods. But God's people, the Israelites, had failed to do this. In fact, we see in two other places in Scripture, in Joshua chapter 9 and in Judges chapter 1, two times already the Israelites have made peace with people they were supposed to drive out and destroy. Now, the peace they made, we we might think this doesn't seem very fair, but what they did is they made an agreement. We will not wipe you out. All you have to do is be our slaves. You have to serve us. You have to work for us. You have to work in our fields and build our buildings. And the people that they were supposed to wipe out agreed this was a good bargain. Why? They had noticed that God was going before his people, that God himself was wiping out nations, that the Israelites were blessed. And so these two people groups, the Gideonites and the Canaanites, chose slavery over death. But what happens is the Israelites made covenants with them. Now, what had God told them? Don't make a covenant. Don't make a contract with the people you're supposed to be driving out. Don't start worshiping their gods. And what we see right here is twice already, God's people made contracts that were convenient to them with the people that they were supposed to be driving out. And they began to practice what we would call syncretism. Syncretism is the the, the, uh, practice of bringing together beliefs from other systems and beginning to, to use them in your own religious life, even while you pretend like you're still worshiping your one true God. And that the Canaan, or excuse me, the Israelites began to practice uh, different, different things, child sacrifice and, and uh, worshiping other gods. And, and they brought it in and pretended to still worship God himself, even while they began to practice other religions. And so God says to them, you've already broken the covenant. You've already disobeyed me. What have you done? Why have you done this? God himself is disappointed in the behavior of his people. He goes on in verse 3 of Judges chapter 2. Therefore, I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a trap for you. So previously, God had told his people, when you march into the promised land, I am going to drive these people out of their home. You guys remember last week, he even promised he would send hornets to drive the people out. How awesome. It's like, it's like drone warfare. I mean, but they're little and they're alive. And God's driving out the pagan peoples in front of the Israelites by using hornets. And, and he's showing his glory and his power. And all of the nations are just overwhelmed at what God is doing through the Israelites. Until now, God has said, 
I'm not going to do it for you anymore. What, what he has really established is that now, when the Israelites want to take more land, they're going to have to fight for it on their own, in their own strength. And sometimes they're going to lose. And it's going to be difficult and bloody and painful in order to expand and grow like they know they need. And, and not only that, but the, the, the very gods that they were supposed to ignore and wipe out are going to be snares for them. They're going to be traps that they're going to fall into. They're going to struggle with worshiping God, the one true God, Yahweh, as He desires and deserves. And they're going to begin to bring in these other false gods. Now, why did all of this happen? Why did all of this unfold like this? Well, it happens because first there was a change of guard. And, and, and this is normally true. As generations pass away, the generations that follow after tend to struggle with being consistent. And so the old timers, the people worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetime of the elders who outlived Joshua. They had seen all the Lord's great uh, works he had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And so all of the old guard, all of, of, of the, the old timers, they had kept the nation fairly faithful. But all of a sudden, as they start to pass away, a new generation comes to power. But, but what God's Word says is that whole old generation, uh, they were all gathered together, and after them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works He had done for Israel. And so, Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 19, tells us about this new generation of Israelites. So we've got the old guard who struggled but still remained faithful, but this new generation that rises up, we see, is begins to be described in verse 11 of chapter 2. Here's what God's Word says. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshipped the Baals, or false gods, uh, and abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them, they angered the Lord, for they abandoned him and worshipped Baal and the Ashtaroths. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them, and they could no longer resist their enemies. Whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them, just as he had promised and sworn to them. So they suffered greatly. The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders. But they did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. They quickly turned from the way of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their ancestors did. Verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their ancestors, following other gods to serve them and bow in worship to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. So we see this new generation of believers, well, non-believers, comes up in Israel and they begin to practice this cycle. This cycle of rebellion and punishment, and then crying out for help, and then getting help from God, and then falling right back into rebellion. Uh, this, 
graphic is from the Bible Project. If you haven't ever seen the BibleProject.com, it's a great website with explainers for every book of the Bible that are very good and help you to see the big picture of every book. But this graphic reveals to us the sin cycle that the children of Israel in this new generation began to enter into. And we see it repeat over and over again for the next 400 years. We see them slipping back and forth into this cycle where they're walking with God, but then they sin and they reject Him and choose to worship other gods. And so as punishment, God sends a different kingdom to oppress them. He, he sells them into slavery, Scripture says. He sends uh, an evil king, an evil nation to kind of stamp them down, to, to, to put their foot uh, on, on the Israelites' neck. And so what happens, of course, is after a few years of oppression and slavery, the Israelites are all like, oh God, we're so sorry. Please save us. And we hit this point of repentance and crying out to God. We, we just, we wish things could be better. We know we did wrong. And so what does God do? God is faithful. God is loving. And he sends a judge to deliver his people. And they, they get freed from the oppressor, they get freed from slavery, freed from taxes. They have a renewed life and a, oftentimes a period of peace. And that lasts from anywhere from like 5, 10, 15, 20 years, a couple weeks. And then all of a sudden, they enter the cycle again. They say, hey, things are good. We can do what we want. God must love us. Let's just party on, Wayne. Party on, Garth. And they begin to sin again. They begin to choose wrongly again. And they live a lifestyle of rejecting God. And so what does God do? He sends an oppressor. And we're going to see this cycle repeated over and over again. And, and what's interesting is we can also see this cycle in many of our own lives. Or the lives of the people around us. Where when things are good, we do what we want. When things get hard, we cry out to God. He saves us. Things get good. We do what we want. He gives us discipline. We cry out to God. He saves us. Things get good. You get the picture. That this sin cycle that we see revealed to us in the book of Judges is actually one that doesn't just belong to the Israelites alone, but it belongs to all of mankind. And it belongs even to Christians today, sadly. So we see in chapter 3 then that the Lord begins to, to test Israel. He begins to tell us exactly what it is they're going to have to go through. It gives us a list of some nations that are going to be around them, but also tells us these are the things that are causing you to enter into and continue to repeat this sin cycle. So in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, this is what God's word says. The Lord left them, these nations, behind to test Israel, to, to determine if they would keep the Lord's commands he had given their ancestors through Moses. But they, the Israelites, settled among the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The Israelites took their daughters as wives for themselves gave their own daughters to their sons, and worshipped their gods. So what caused this sin cycle? 
What caused God's people to fall into this place where they refused God or rejected God and worshipped false gods and then were oppressed and then cried out for help and then were delivered and had a time of peace in which they went back and rejected God? What is it that caused the sin cycle? Well, here's, here's what we see is, is the Israelites were put in the midst of six nations and these six nations all worshipped pagan gods and they all lived in a manner that was displeasing to God. If you guys remember when we look back and we talked about Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy was a book, we didn't really go through it in depth, but it was a book in which God reiterated his rules and his standards to his people just prior to them entering into the promised land. And why did he do that? Because he wanted his people to know that they were supposed to live differently than the nations that they were going into. But what happens is God says, you didn't drive them out. You didn't destroy their false gods. Instead, you started to live among them. You chose, instead of following my rules, instead of casting out that which was evil, you decided to live in the midst of it. So this is the first thing that causes the sin cycle in the life of the Israelites, is instead of rejecting the culture, the pagan cultures around them, they choose to live amongst them. Now, living amongst them is not necessarily like the thing that does it. Like, we can live in the middle of bad circumstances and still be faithful and righteous people. But God had commanded them to drive out the pagans, to drive out the other nations, and not to live among them. And so their first compromise was, you know what? It's okay. We're strong enough. We're good enough. We can do this. We can live among them. And then it says their second compromise is that they chose to marry into them. They chose to give their, their, their daughters to their sons, to take their daughters for their own sons. They chose to, to begin to mix the cultures, to begin to take the beliefs of the pagans and, and mix them in ever so gently with their own beliefs. It's interesting, when you marry into a family, you marry into more than just a person, don't you? <laughs> wow, okay, hey, we got a quick amen on that one. You know, uh-huh. I mean, uh, so we can even go with things that are as simple as, as what you do on Christmas morning. Uh, if you are married, you, you uh, have been married for any number of years and, and you stop going to mom and dad's or, or, or whatever for Christmas, but you start having Christmas morning at your own home with maybe even your own children, you begin to have discussions about what that will look like, right? Because Shelly came from a family where, and, and you can correct me if I am, am incorrect, but you got up, you got dressed, you got ready for, for a Sunday, essentially, before you came downstairs to partake of Christmas. And it was usually get ready, have breakfast, you know, I mean, the, the whole shebang, and then we'll, we'll go neatly to the, 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 the room, living room, den, wherever, and the, you know, the tree, and the, but it's a very formal affair. And then there's my family. The alarm goes off, you make coffee for dad, you're in your pajamas, as long as there's coffee, you were good to go. And we're all sitting around the tree in our pajamas and opening gifts, and then eventually we'll get some breakfast, and there's a really good chance we'll never get out of our pajamas. 
like all day long. You know, and, and there are different things you eat when you're from different families and different practices. And, and as we started to develop, what, have our, what are our traditions going to be? You know, there were some, some simple discussions. Mostly it was, Shelly doesn't like to get dressed up anyways. Neither do I. So pajamas were great, right? Right. Uh, you know, and, and, but there are certain traditions from her family. We've got certain traditions from my family. But you see something where even where we agree on, on the same thing, we are celebrating Christmas. There were different traditions that were brought in through marriage that we had to syncretize. We had to, to bring into uh, agreement with one another over time. Now, same is true. Marriage, two different cultures, two different ways of believing, two different gods. You marry them together, and over time, that relationship will result in a blending of the faiths. It'll result in a falling away for the person who worships the one true God, because usually what happens is even just a little bit of poison in the faith of a genuine believer results in the loss of their faith, the loss of their faithfulness. That's, you know, that, that, that uh, old idea. I have a cup of water here. It's pure water. How many drops of poison would you like me to put into it before it's no longer safe? Well, one. I mean, that would, that, I'm done. One drop of poison, I'm out. You have a pure faith. How many drops of infidelity? How many drops of false God does it take to make your faith impure? Just one drop. And so... As the Israelites married into the nations around them, their faith becomes muddled and mixed up with those of false gods. And so it's no surprise that the Israelites began to worship like the pagans around them. They began to do things in the name of God that were not mandated by him and in fact were prohibited by him. And they actually began to worship other gods in addition to the one true God. And so this is what caused them to enter into that sin cycle. They compromised. They gave in. They decided, well, a little bit isn't, isn't bad, but a little bit turns into a completely corrupted faith, a completely corrupted life over the course of time. And so it was these three things, living among them and marrying into them and worshiping like them that created The circumstances for the sin cycle. And so what does God do? Well, he begins to rescue his people from this sin cycle over and over again by sending the judges. And that's why this book is named Judges, right? You you get the picture. It it details uh, the stories of 12 different leaders who were given to the people of Israel to save them from their own sin and its consequences. Now, oftentimes we maybe think of a judge, we think of like a, you know, a powdery wig and a white or a black robe and a gavel. No, in here in the book of Judges, a judge is more rightly described from our perspective as a civil magistrate or even a war chieftain. Because these were not circumstances where they just needed somebody to say, well, the law says, but they needed someone to lead them into battle to defeat their oppressors. And that's what happens oftentimes. And so this sin cycle begins in the book of Judges with this simple statement. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. We see this repeated over and over again in the book of Judges. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. 
Judges 3.7 gives us some specifics about what was evil. They forgot the Lord their God and worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. So they began to worship false gods. And so God sends for them an oppressor. And um, we, we see in verse 8, it uh, tells us who he is. Uh, King Kushan Rishathayim of Aram Naharim. Isn't that fun? Let's just call him an oppressor. God sends a bad guy to punish his people for their unfaithfulness. They cry out and then he sends a good guy to rescue them because he loves them. And he wants to bring them back into right relationship. The first of the judges was, was Othniel. He was Caleb's nephew. If you remember Caleb, way back in the book of Numbers, Caleb and Joshua were the two spies who went into Israel to look at it uh, along with ten others. Those two came back and said, we can do it. The other ten said, no, them people are big. And uh, the people believed the ten spies who were pessimists and ended up punished with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Caleb lived. He has a brother who um, here has a son whose name is Othniel. He is the first judge who rescues God's people from that king with the really long name. And then they have 40 years of peace. What a great story, right? God disciplines his people. He rescues his people when they repent. He gives them peace. And then the Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Chapter 3, verse 12. He gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. And so God gives them another oppressor, Eglon of Moab, after they rebel against God, after they reject God. And they cry out. They're tired of being oppressed. They're tired of being taxed into oblivion. So God sends Ehud, a left-handed Benjaminite. And now why is that important? Well, because left-handed people are kind of outcasts. And God used an outcast from the smallest tribe of Israel. In order to save his people. Ehud kills Eglon of Moab. The whole story is awesome. You should read it. Chapter 3 verses 12 and following. I won't go into all the details. But it would make a great movie. And after Ehud kills Eglon. God blesses his people with 80 years of peace. 80 years of peace. You think well hey the last cycle it was just 40 years. Now they've made it 80 years and they've been faithful. They should be good right? Everything should be in good shape. We get to chapter 4, verse 1. You're, gonna, you're never going to guess this. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. Big surprise, right? Oh no, they did it again. And guess what? God sends for them an oppressor. King Jabin of Canaan, who had a, a commander of his army whose name was Sisera, who was just this glorious general who kept winning and winning and winning and oppressing the people of Israel. So what does God do? Well, he allows them that oppression until they cry out and say, God, save us. And then he sends someone to save them. Here we have the third. I'm a Shamgar. There's another one in there, Shamgar. Nothing much to know about him. All right, then verse four though. He's, a, he's, he's got one verse, verse 31 of chapter 3. How did I miss Shamgar? You know, sometimes one verse, you just skip over him. Um, 
and yet to have one verse in God's word that was about me. That would be so cool too. God raises up Deborah. She's a prophetess. She's already in the, in the practice of judging Israel. And when we talk about judging here, this is the actual sitting. Two people bring a dispute. She looks at God's law and says, yeah, you're right. You're wrong. Pay the dude. Or something like that. So she's already judging Israel. And Deborah actually speaks on behalf of God and she summons Barak to be the war chieftain. So Deborah calls on Barak really to be the, the chieftain who's supposed to be the judge, who's supposed to be doing what God has asked and, and freeing his people. But you know what Barak says? Hey, I'm kind of scared. I'll do it if you go with me. So God tells Deborah, yeah, go with him. But he's not going to get the honor out of this. Someone else will. In fact, it'll be a woman. Cool story. Another one that belongs in like a movie. A slave woman drives a stake through Sisera's head. That's how the general actually gets defeated ultimately. God frees his people when a slave woman drives a tent stake through a man's head. The Canaanites are defeated. There are 40 years of peace. 40 years of peace. They should be done now. This should be good, right? I mean, we've even got a whole song where Deborah and Barak sing together about how God good, how good God is and how he's saving his people. Chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years. So now they do it again and they're oppressed again and they're ruled over by Midian. The story goes on to tell us that that people were actually hiding their grain and their crops. And this dude, Gideon, is, is threshing grain inside of a wine press. So he is, he is like trying to, to be completely covert with his food because the Midianites are taking everything. And God comes to him and says, you're going to be the one who frees your people. And Gideon says, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm from the weakest family in Manasseh, which is one of the weakest tribes. And I'm scared to death. God comforts him. God gives him direction. God does miraculous things. And then God uses Gideon and 300 men to defeat the Midianites, an army of thousands. And in fact, it was completely God's work because Gideon and the men he was with, they defeated the army of Midian with some torches and some trumpets. And God confused the army of Midian and they all decided to slaughter one another out of fear. And they beat the Midianites. And, and what happens is Gideon actually goes from this fearful little guy to a pretty good leader. The Israelites asked him to be king and he refuses. In chapter 8, verse 22, they, they, they want Gideon to be king. They say to him, rule over us, you as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon was a pretty good leader. Of course, he makes a mistake too. He ends up forming an ephod. It's a a breastplate or a thing to wear for a priest. And the people actually begin to worship it. And it becomes a stumbling block. They turn it into a false god. And then Gideon rules for 40 years. Serves as judge for 40 years. There are 40 years of peace. Finally, things should be right. Right? Right? What's interesting is this is the last time the Israelites will have any peace in the book of Judges. 
This is the last time that a, a judge, a leader, will help usher in a period of peacefulness. Instead, they will go from oppression to freedom to oppression almost immediately from here on out. The cycle actually speeds up. <clears throat> when Gideon died, chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, the Israelites turned and prostituted themselves by worshiping the Baals and made Baal Barith their god. The Israelites did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hand of the enemies around them. As soon as Gideon dies, they begin to worship false gods. There's 40 years of peace where God has blessed them. And the first thing they do is worship other gods. And so we end up with a couple of other judges that we, we really don't know much about. One of Gideon's sons, his name was Japheth, he tries to rule Excuse me, his name was Abimelech. There we go. His name was Abimelech. He tries to rule over Israel, but they, they reject him. He ends up getting killed. And so we end up with these two other judges. Tola, told to us in uh, his stories in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. He's from the tribe of Issachar. And the only thing it says about him is that he judged 23 years. So he helps Israel try and rise up, try and overcome their sin cycle, try and be blessed by God. And he lasts for 23 years. And then we have Jair. Chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, he's from Gilead. He has 30 sons on 30 donkeys in 30 towns. That's what scripture tells us about him. That's what's notable about him. Apparently, he was fairly wealthy. And he had lots of donkeys and sons. And he judged for 22 years, and that's it. He, he just judged for 22 years, and yet the, the Israelites are still stuck in this sin cycle. They're still struggling with oppression Chapter 10, verse 6. Then the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They worshipped the Baals and the Ashtaroths, the gods of Aram, Sidon, and Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines. They are actually adding false gods to their resume. They have gone through this cycle over and over again. God has sought to it that they were judged and oppressed. Then he sends a rescuer when they finally repent, and yet they still... It's not just that they're going through this cycle again, but they're actually getting better at sinning. All of these gods, they abandoned the Lord and they did not worship him. So God sends Jephthah. He's a Gileadite warrior. He's a pagan. If, if we look in uh, chapter 11, verses 30 and 31, it tells us that he makes a promise a vow. If in fact you hand over the Ammonites to me, whoever comes out the doors of my house to greet me when I return safely from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord, and I will offer that person as a burnt offering. Jephthah was so caught up in pagan culture, he was practicing human sacrifice and thought it would be pleasing to God. And, and yet God still chooses to use him to... to free his people from some oppression, to, to give them a, a modicum of freedom. For six years, Jephthah is judge. And then it doesn't even bother to tell us that they sinned again because it's so clear that they're still right there in the middle of sin that we end up with three more judges, just kind of like bang, 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 Ibzan. He was from Bethlehem. He had 30 sons and daughters married outside of the tribe of Judah which means that he was not working to preserve the faithfulness of his family. He was allowing his children to marry whomever. He was compromising his faith. He judged just seven years. Elon, he was from Zebulun and he judged 10 years. That's all scripture tells us. Nothing like super amazing about him. Abdon, 
He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons, and they all rode around on 70 donkeys. Mm, yeah. I mean, so he's a well, well-heeled man. He's got lots of money. He judges for eight years, but he does not ultimately rescue God's people. They're still stuck in this sin cycle. They're still stuck in this over and over again, rejecting God and walking away. Judges 13.1 tells us this. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines 40 years. 40 years of oppression. 40 years of essentially slavery being taxed into oblivion. God says, this is what you get. For choosing other gods. This is your judgment. And then God sends the last of the judges that are recorded here in the book of Judges. And probably one that many of us are most familiar with, except for maybe Gideon and or Deborah. And that is Samson. Chapter 13, verses 1 uh, verse 1 through 1631 is the whole story of Samson. And Samson, his, uh, God comes to his parents uh, and, and tells them that they're going to have a son and that he will uh, be a Nazarite from birth. And the Nazarite vow had already been given in Scripture and explained. And what it was is it was supposed to be, for most people, a short-term vow in which you didn't get a haircut, you didn't drink alcohol, you didn't touch any dead things. And you committed your life to God for a a season in order to come back, get a haircut, dedicate the hair to God, and and just celebrate what God had done in your life is is really what it boiled down to. Kind of a short-term mission trip, but you didn't have to go anywhere. Um, And so, so Samson, though, was supposed to be a Nazarite from birth. So he was supposed to never have his hair cut, never have any alcohol, and not touch any dead things. And if you read the story you find out he really didn't do a very good job at being a Nazarite. He was not a perfect man by any means. In fact, we find him touching dead things. He probably drank. And he ends up getting a haircut, has his eyes gouged out, and ends up grinding somebody else's grain. He serves as a judge for 20 years, but never really frees his people from the oppression of the Philistines. But here's what he does do is after he gets his hair cut, loses all of his strength, has his eyes gouged out. He's grinding grain for, well, as a slave. Some time passes, his hair grows back out. He gets strong again. They bring him to a pagan temple, one of the false gods of the Philistines. And they, they chain him up kind of as a, a show to, to, to show how powerful their God is. He has to stand near the central pillars of that temple. And then he prays this this prayer to God. And most of us would think that someone who was serving God, they'd pray a prayer like, Oh Lord, here I am in the, the temple of a false God. Let me show your power and prove to these Philistines just how powerless their their false God is. May you be glorified. Here's what Samson prays. He called out to the Lord, Lord God... Please strengthen me, God, just once more. With one act of vengeance, let me pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. He wants to get even for his eyeballs. That's his whole goal. I want to kill these people because they poked out my eyes. He doesn't want to glorify God. He doesn't want to prove that this God whose temple that he's in is a false God that can be destroyed. He He wants his eyes back. 
And since he can't get them back, he's going to make them pay. Now, he does, actually. It tells us in the story that, that he, he pulls the pillars down, it crashes down in, and he ends up killing... Uh, what does it say? Uh, da, da, da. Those he killed at his death were more than those he killed in his life. The temple fell, killed all the leaders, all the people in it. I mean, it was a really, really amazing thing. But instead of him doing it for the glory of God, he's doing it for the glory of his own eyeballs. Now, what, what does that all say? Why, why, did, why I point that out? Because Samson, he's not the hero that we imagine from Sunday school stories. He is a selfish, self-centered nearly pagan, all-out man. And yet God uses him to give his people a, a semblance of freedom. But he's still imperfect as a judge. He can't genuinely free his people. He can't give them a lasting freedom. He can't give them a, a long-term hope. And here he is in the last moments of his life, more angry about his eyes than he is about sin. More angry about his eyes than he is about his own people walking away from God. Then the book of Judges begins to tell us in the next few chapters this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. The next chapter. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And the Danite tribe was looking for territory to occupy. Up to that time, no territory had been captured by them among the tribes of Israel. The story goes on to say that they did despicable things and worshipped false gods in order to try and get territory. Chapter 19, in those days when there was no king in Israel, a Levite staying in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim acquired a woman from Bethlehem in Judah as his concubine. The story goes on to tell us because there was no king, because people did what was right in their own eyes, that the people in a city where he was staying came and demanded him so that they might have their way with him. Instead, his host of the night gives his daughter and this concubine to the crowd. They have their way. The concubine dies. You see, there was no king and people did what was right in their own eyes. Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. No longer are they cycling sin and repentance there's sin and oppression and repentance and a deliverer and peace. Now they are just hardcore stuck in sin. They are slaves, not to the kingdoms around them, but to the sin of their own hearts. And they cannot conquer it. And no man or woman in the whole book of Judges can actually save these people from their own sinfulness. None of them. Now you might go, wow, what a depressing story. Yes. It is. But it's a depressing story that ultimately we see God resolves with one true king, one true judge who is perfect and sinless. And when he gives his life on the cross and rises again on the third day, he provides for the people the means to escape the sin cycle, to be genuinely free. To be able to, to conquer the false gods and the broken cultures that they used to live in and instead come to a place where they can be in right relationship with God through our judge, our king, our savior, Christ Jesus. So some things to take home today 
For those of us who are either Christians, or, and even if you're not a believer this morning, you're still wondering about the Christian faith, I want to just challenge you, beware of the sin cycle. Beware of this, this cycle that you can enter into, just like the Israelites did, where, where you, you'll, you'll think things are good with God, and then you'll go your own way, and you'll reject Him in some area of life, or some command that He's given, some clear teaching. You'll reject, and then He will discipline you. And you'll cry out, Lord, save me. And he will bring you through that discipline. And he will rescue you and bring you back into a time of peace. And then you'll find yourself wandering again and sinning and facing discipline and crying out. And he rescues you. And you have a time of peace. Where then you get complacent and you find yourself sinning. Any, does anybody relate to that? Can anybody hear that and find that in your own life? Beware the sin cycle, brothers and sisters. Beware. Even as believers, we can still fall into a sin cycle. We can still find ourselves in a place where everything's cool. We get complacent. We choose to sin. God brings us punishment or discipline is what Hebrews calls it in chapter 12. He brings us discipline. We repent of of what we fell short on. He rescues us and brings us through that time of discipline. He renews us. And then we get complacent again. It's something to be very, very watchful of in your own life. But one way to avoid the sin cycle is to avoid the very things that cause us to sin. To be aware, to be diligent in the things that cause us to sin. You see, we, are, we have to live where we live, right? I mean, we, we're not going to just be a cult and go live on a commune. Uh, as good as that sounds some days... To some of us, uh, not that I want to be a cult leader, don't, don't, but, but to say, it'd be nice to just go live on a farm and milk cows and eat our own grain, right? I mean, doesn't that sound nice some days? But we are tasked with living in this world, but not being of it. But we have to be careful. Even living in this world, we can make compromises. We can choose to do what's okay. And this is an easy one. To pick on because I do it all the time and you know I, I say to myself don't but speeding on 79 now I, if you drive 55 on 79 may the Lord bless and keep you you're gonna die right but by living among these people that like to drive 85 and 90 up 79 do you know what I find myself doing 70 75 I was at like 82 yesterday. I, I know. And are they going to come arrest me now that I've convinced this on a live stream? Um, but that is the simplest of, that's the simplest of examples I can give you about what it means to live among them and begin to look like them. When you get into traffic, what's the philosophy? As long as I'm not the fastest one, I'm good. But you're still breaking the law. I'm still breaking the law. So understand, you might find me on 79, and I might go blown past you in that red Volkswagen with the cool uh, luggage rack and the Darth Pastor sticker on it. That's me. I'll wave if I know it's you. I'll still struggle with this. But you understand just how easy it is to slip into it. You get it? Driving fast on 79 is just the beginning of living among them and beginning to look like them. Marrying into them. Accepting their ways, bringing their traditions into our own home and making them ours. 
these are not healthy things. And ultimately, what we end up doing is worshiping the gods of this world if we're not careful. And what are the gods of this world? Well, we've got some really clear pagan gods, right? We've got some false religions, religions we would say in no way can save because they worship a god that is untrue. But we also, as Americans, we have our own special religion. We worship things like success and money and houses and cars. And we worship things like popularity and power. And we can begin to worship like them if we are not careful. Even as a pastor, it is so tempting to look at guys with really big churches and, you know, mansions and three and four cars and go, I wish I could be like them and, and have a life like theirs. And it's because I'm worshiping a false god. All of us can fall prey to that. Here's what um, Jesus prays for us. He says, I have given them to you. I've given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but you would protect them from the evil one. Your Savior, on the night before he was crucified, he prayed for you that you would be protected from the ways of this world. That doesn't mean we get to dive in headlong. Lord, protect me, right? No. We still make wise choices, but in making our wise choices, we know we're not alone. He will protect us from these sin causes. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the Apostle John writes this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Beware of the things that cause us to enter into the sin cycle. The things that the world loves. The things that we are prone to fall prey to in love. Flesh, eyes, possessions. And instead, avoid those things. And allow yourself to remain free from the sin cycle. But above all else, remember that there's only one man, one judge, one king, who can save you and I from the sin cycle. Who is that? Jesus. It's coming up November. We're going to vote. None of those men or women will save us from anything. Period. No matter how good they are, they, they, they just won't. The only judge who will save, the only king who will save, is the one true Lord. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Acts 2.36 tells us this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel and all of mankind know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, King and Rescuer. And then the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 10, 9, that to receive Jesus as your judge, your King, your Savior, it is this simple. How, or what does it take to be saved from the sin cycle? To follow after him, to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And when you do that, you too can be saved from the sin cycle. You too can be saved from the things that cause us to enter into the sin cycle. You too can walk in faithfulness with the one true God and find out what real life is when you trust on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I want to encourage you if you've got questions. We covered a lot of stuff today. If you've got questions, first of all, any of the judges you want to talk about, let's do it. But the application, 
Get out of the sin cycle. Be aware of it. Beware of the things that lead you into it. And if you've never done it before, turn to Jesus Christ as your one true Savior. Only He can save you from that cycle of sin that will lead to nothing but brokenness and loss. And if you have never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you need to know more about what it takes, come find somebody. Grab a friend who brought you. Grab, grab somebody who looks spiritual. Say, what do, what, what do I have to do to be saved? And if they can't answer it, then the two of you come together to me, and we'll talk about it. And we'll, we'll just discuss, what is it? What does it take to be saved? And it's so easy, and yet it will cost you everything. You don't have to do anything hardly, and yet it costs you your whole life in a beautiful way. And you too can be saved from the sin cycle. Hopefully we can all, with ever-increasing measure, experience more and more of the glory and redemption of God. Just like we see here in the Old Testament. But it's come to its fruition and its completion in the new. We've got one more song to close with, and I've got to get over the guitar somehow and, and put it on. So um, <clears throat> how are we going to do that? Well, we'll just, I'll start meandering over there. And you guys, what I want to encourage you to do is just take a moment. If you find yourself stuck in a sin cycle, or you find yourself stuck with these sin causes, to just spend a moment talking to Jesus and asking for his rescue. So heads bowed and eyes closed. Let's just take a second and talk to God about where we're at and what we're feeling. And our personal response today to the goodness of his message and the promise of rescue that can come through His Son, Christ Jesus.
Holy Father, God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time. And we thank you so much that your word reveals to us that we are not alone, that this sin cycle is something all of us need freedom from, that these sin causes are they're just ubiquitous. They're, they are normal for all of mankind. And yet you gave us freedom in your son, Jesus Christ, for all who would believe, who all, for all who would proclaim him to be their Lord and Savior we can be saved from this sin cycle. We can be saved from these causes of sin. We can be saved from this slavery and oppression and be made free through him. May it be so for all of us today. We thank you for the time. We thank you for the food that awaits us downstairs. We pray your blessing upon the food, upon the conversation, upon the remainder of this week, that you would be glorified and we might grow up in Christ-likeness free from the cycle, serving him as our king. In his name we pray this morning. Amen. You guys are dismissed. There's food downstairs for everybody who welcome back to church. And uh, thank you so much for spending time. I'm available if you guys, anybody needs to talk or for prayer, as well as our other elders, Steve and Don. So uh, God bless you guys. Have a great week.